I love when the choir sings just before I get up to preach because it leads so well into the sermon. My hope, my prayer, even as we go to the Lord in a time of prayer of illumination, is that our hearts would be overwhelmed by the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. That's the goal of presenting the Word. The Word of God bears witness to the work of Jesus, to His grace on our behalf that we would be gripped by grace to go out into the world to be Christ's servants. Uh, quick reminder, I know Andrew announced it earlier, but the congregational meeting immediately follows the service, so I'll try my best not to preach for three hours so that we can, you know, have at a decent time the congregational meeting and get out and have lunch and enjoy this balmy day that it is outside, right? So are we not spoiled in Florida? Because I'll tell you what, if I called either one of my brothers in Philadelphia or Boston, and if I said to them, oh, goodness, it, it is just bitterly, bitterly cold today, and they said, what's the temperature? 58. I think I'd be disowned from my family if I, if I did that. So, uh, you know, the sermon ought to be, for my heart, ought to be on not complaining. 58 is not all that bad. So, okay. I think I got the congregational meeting out of the way. You know that. Hope you can stay. We need at least 30 of you for a quorum. So, you know, I, I hope we can at least get, get that. Paul says to the Ephesians, he prays for them, and this is his prayer. So this becomes the prayer for the church applied to us, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that we might know the hope to which we've been called by God, the glorious inheritance in the saints, and that we would also know the power of God, which he says is like the power of Christ's resurrection. He says that is presently at work within you. That is, as we go to the Lord in our prayer of illumination, what are we asking the Spirit to illumine in our hearts? Well, the hearts are, so to speak, the control center of our being, consisting of our mind, so we think, our will, so that we can act, our affections, shaping our likes and our loves, and our hates and our dislikes, and our emotions. The heart is kind of that control center. And Paul is saying, I pray that the eyes of your control center would be enlightened, would be opened, that the hope to which you've been called, the glorious inheritance, would grip your life. That's what we're asking the Spirit to show us in His Word. Not to just give us information, but to absolutely define our very life so that as the psalmist prays, as the deer pants for streams of water, so our souls would never ever be satisfied. We would be always panting for the very presence of God. How's that for a big vision for prayer? I don't expect the Lord to accomplish much, do I? Let's ask him to illumine our minds and our hearts as we turn to his word. Father, we do ask, I, I can accomplish nothing, and we can accomplish nothing without your spirit. So we pray, we implore you to open the eyes of our hearts, that we'd be able to see the glory of Christ, be gripped by Christ that we, as we're going to look in this parable of the sower, would have ears to hear, that the depth of the message would penetrate and be worked into our lives by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. If you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4, the passage upon which our teaching is based this morning is the parable of the sower. Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. 
And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things, enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. In this parable, just to give you the big picture first, before we dive into some of the details, there are two dominant images that continue to come up. The dominant image of the seed, this tiny, seemingly insignificant thing that releases amazing power, and to hear, to listen. In fact, throughout this chapter, if you take all of Mark chapter 4, the Greek word for hear is used 13 times. He was ears to hear, let him hear, listen, here, are you the depth of your listening, of your ability to take in the message becomes a dominant issue. Seed and hearing, two things I would say I'm not very good at naturally. I'll pick on the guys for a second. I can remember going to a World Harvest Conference years and years ago, and from the front they gave us this exercise. I always cringed when they would give us one of these exercises. They would say, men, I want you to ask your wife something. And I want you to ask your wife this, and I don't want you to get angry. I don't want you to get defensive. I want you to just be quiet and listen to their answer. I want you to ask your wife if there is one thing that you could change about me, what would it be? And almost to a T, every wife would go, I wish you would listen. Really listen. I was reminded of this as well, seed and listening. When I was in college, there was one summer, my roommate and I from college moved back in with my parents for a period of time, 
And we decided, well, it'd be a good thing to give back, you know, be responsible. So we decided we would plant a vegetable garden for my parents. And so we got out there, and I was excited about this. Plant a garden, dig up the land, you know. I'm never a guy who works well with his hands. And so, you know, get out there, till the land, farm the soil. I had this great image and stuff like that. Now, remember I said seed and listening were not my forte, not my niche. So I was in there, let's go to the store. I grabbed my roommate, let's go to the landscaping place. I'm tomatoes and cucumbers and eggplant and zucchini. I don't even like zucchini, but I'm like, we're going to grow zucchini, broccoli, everything imaginable. And my mom is like, Jeff, here's the listening part. She's going, Jeff, you have a small plot of land. Be careful how much you grow out there. I ignored that. If one tomato seed is good, 48 is better. We're going to get all the broccoli and watermelon you can. And what happens after a while? It bore fruit and choked out and came out. And before you know it, I'm digging up and tilling the soil. Once again, cleaning up the mess that I made. Hearing. Listening. Really listening. And seeds, such a small thing. Do we believe that such a small thing? Jesus is the sower. He's sowing the seed. The seed is the word of God. Do we listen to it? Do we hear it? Do we trust that something so small, so ordinary, so insignificant can yield such tremendous power? One writer put it, he said, the parable of the sower is a parable about hearing. Hearing the message of the kingdom. Do you really hear the message? He says, this is a parable about receiving the word of the kingdom. He says, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of the word. And to be a disciple of the kingdom means hearing and remaining focused on the message of the kingdom in such a way that one is defined by it. And he writes, the key to spiritual formation is the willingness to listen. The practice of the discipline of listening and responding appropriately to the received word. Another writer says the parable of the sower is the classic parable of Jesus's kingdom announcement. The parable of the story of the sower tells the story of the kingdom of God. And the Holy Spirit wants you to hear and know that story. And in this text, we learn there are three things about Jesus's kingdom announcement. The story of the kingdom. We hear that it is a secret story, a subversive story, and a salvation story. A secret story? Verse 11, what does it say? To you have been given the secret of the kingdom. In other words, a mystery is revealed to those with the good soil. It's a subversive story. It certainly doesn't come as expected. And it's a salvation story. First of all, it's a secret story. What do we mean by that? Well, let's take a look at where Mark has taken us. Let's review and remind ourselves a little bit of where we've been so far in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1, he stated his purpose right out there. He said, here's what it's all about. Here's what I'm about to narrate for you. He says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In other words, the Word of God is about Jesus, not about us. Yes, we have application, and it is about us secondarily as we bring the story of our lives and we bring our story into Jesus' story. As we bring ourselves into Jesus. But he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So when we read the Bible, we have to read it about 
Jesus. And after going through some of the history, John the Baptist, Jesus' baptism and temptation in the wilderness, Jesus begins his public ministry with the proclamation. He went around proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled. In other words, the time is now. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In other words, Jesus' gospel proclamation that we read every other proclamation in the light of, it was a proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. Those two things go together. The gospel, its content, what the good news actually is, is the good news of the kingdom of God, which he then goes on demonstrating its power, its authority through his exorcisms, his healing. And now when we get to Mark chapter 4, We have Jesus' first, I'll call it extended teaching. Not his first teaching. He's taught who's his new family, those who do the will of the Father. But this is his first extended teaching. And the text tells us, verse 1, again he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, and he was teaching them many things in parables. What are parables, and why did Jesus teach in them? And remember, Part of it is Jesus says, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. So in other words, why, what are parables? What is this kind of cryptic form of teaching that Jesus is embarking on? One commentator explains the nature of parables by giving the following illustration. He tells the story of a young man who was suffering from deep depression. And He eventually went and sought medical help, and he told his doctor not only of how bad he was feeling, but of kind of this night-by-night recurring dream that he continued to have. He said he was inside a house, and the house was on fire. And a close friend was setting light to it and pouring petrol on the flames. He was terrified, absolutely terrified. But he always managed, in the end, to somehow escape and get out of the house. He went to the doctor and he says, doctor, do you know what this means? Because it's impacting me, it's affecting me greatly. The doctor says, I have no problem explaining it. She says, in the dream, the house stands for your whole self. The friend is a part of your own personality that's important to you, but in this case, it's causing you some trouble. The story tells you what is at a level below conscious thought about what you really know what's happening in this case, but that although at this time you're experiencing something extremely unpleasant, You will escape. You'll be okay in the end. The commentator makes the point, contextually, looking at this in first century and kind of through first century eyes, commentator makes the point that in the ancient world, almost everybody would be familiar about dreams and their interpretation. Just give you a couple examples through the Old Testament. I mean, if we go way back in the ancient world, you have Joseph. How did Joseph raise to prominence... In Pharaoh's court, and become virtually, they didn't use this title, but pretty much prime minister of Egypt. It was through receiving and interpreting, hearing and interpreting dreams. Jump ahead several centuries later, and you have Daniel. Daniel comes, and what brings Daniel to prominence? Nebuchadnezzar is having bad dreams. What does Daniel do? He interprets them. So the ancient world would be very familiar with the concept of dreams and their interpretation. And this commentator goes on to say, that's in a sense what parables are all about. 
They're like dreams in search of a meaning. They're cryptic. They're meant to enlighten. They're meant to teach. They're meant to give information. But they do so in kind of this secret sort of way. Which is why, at first, those around him, and they actually show evidence of a teachable spirit, because what do they do? They ask Jesus. The text tells us they go to him and say, um, excuse me, professor, can you give us the answer to this? We don't get the meaning of the parables. And so it reminds me of being in seminary. I probably drove Tim Keller and my other professors crazy. Excuse me, I don't get that one. Go back over that one. I would do that time and time and time again. And Jesus is saying, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom. How much do we pursue? Do we follow after? Do we seek after God? Do we follow after Jesus? Are we listening? Do we really hear the message? Let's go further. The story is not only a secret story, that both, what does it do? It reveals and it conceals. But in a sense, it's a subversive story. What do we mean by that? And this is kind of gets to why Jesus spoke in parables. Look at what I think is the most difficult part of the text, verses 10 to 13. It says, And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And that's a good thing. They're asking him. And he says to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. In other words, you're asking, that's evidence that you're seeking. That's to you has been given, but not to everyone. Not to everyone. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand any of the parables? Now what's going on there? Jesus is here quoting from the prophet Isaiah. Specifically, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 6. So we've got to review a little bit what Isaiah 6 is all about. Isaiah 6 is Isaiah's commissioning as a prophet. We know the major part of his commission. He walks into the temple, the scene of the presence of God, and he is confronted with the glory of God. Seraphs crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah handles things a little differently than is handled sometimes in contemporary worship. Isaiah doesn't just sit there and say, wow, what a neat worship service. Seraphs flying around, isn't this cool? He's confronted with the glory of God and immediately he is struck down. And he doesn't say, I try really hard to live a good life, to be a good person, but you know what, I'm a sinner and I, I, I just don't hit the mark. I fall short of the glory of God. No. Isaiah pronounces a curse on himself. Woe is me. The language is extremely important because that's the language of a covenantal curse. That's not the language of I'm flawed and I need help. That's the language of death. That is the language of dying to himself. He's pronouncing a curse on himself. Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Very important verse for understanding the parable of the sower, and we will return to it. Remember, Scripture interprets Scripture. So we have to keep these things in mind to understand this. Is John chapter 12 that says, unless a seed 
a grain of wheat, a little seed falls into a, the ground and dies, it remains alone. Okay, remember I said the parable is the story of the kingdom. What's going on here in Isaiah is Isaiah is being a seed falling into the ground and dying. He's experiencing a sort of death. He is dying to himself in order to be raised and become seed for the world and minister. Because what happens after he dies to himself is the Lord sends his messengers to touch his lips. See, your guilt is removed, your sin is atoned for. And then, and even in Isaiah 6, you've got the dominant theme of hearing. Isaiah hears the royal court of the Lord. He's able to hear and perceive and understand the message that says, whom shall we send? Who will go for us? Isaiah is running to the front of the line saying, here am I, send me. Salvation leads to mission. Salvation leads to a missional church. A missional church is just what? A biblical church. Here am I, send me. And then God responds with his job description. And his job description goes like this. He receives his commission. He says, you'll go to a people who will keep on hearing but won't understand. They will keep on seeing but not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now, I got to be honest. Hearing Isaiah's words kind of rock me a little bit, hearing the, you know, this text because, you know, as a pastor, you want to be called to ministry, and you know, you kind of want, what do you view success? You kind of sit there and go, people understand, they're growing in the faith, growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah gets a commission, and he's told, you want to know what successful ministry will look like? Nobody will get it. Nobody will understand. Nobody will, be, nobody will turn. Their hearts will become dull. Their hearts will become hard. And if that happens, good job, Isaiah, you've succeeded. I don't know about Isaiah, but I'd be going, God, are you kidding me? That's success in ministry? And a little bit of a tangent, but an application is we have to be careful in the world what we view and think of as success. Is success automatically a growing church that's planting churches, that's reproducing churches, that's doing? Well, maybe, but maybe not. We're not sure. This was success. What is Jesus doing here? See, Isaiah's prophetic commission, the Lord's ordination of Isaiah's ministry, and what Jesus is doing is he's, a play, he's basically, in the parable of the sower, recapitulating the story himself. He is living out the story of Israel and the, prophetic, the prophets and the prophetic commission, and Isaiah's prophetic commission leads Israel through judgment to mercy. Their path was through devastating judgment. Eventually, it will be exile into mercy. And the sign of mercy is the seed. Because in Isaiah 6.13, it says, and though a tenth remain in it, in other words, a tenth remain, there'll be a remnant. Even though I'm judging, there'll be mercy, there'll be a remnant. It will be burned, and the word there means purged, refined, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is fell, and the holy seed is its stump. In other words, the story is subverted. The kingdom does not come the way it's expected to come. We ask the question, well, wait a second, doesn't Jesus want everybody to get the message? 
The answer is yes and no. Remember, it is a secret, it's a mystery story, not just a puzzle, but a divine secret which Jesus is revealing. It's divine revelation that's dependent upon him to open the eyes of your heart. And as with all divine revelation, as one writer puts it, he says, you can only understand if you believe, if you trust, if you really hear, and hearing is not automatic. Hearing is dependent on God and his grace. Tim Keller illustrated it this way. He says, you have to realize that Jesus here is surrounded by people. He's thronged by people. What did the context of the narrative? Pay attention to the context when you read these narratives. He got into a boat. People are, the crowd's gathering. They're on the land even while he's speaking from the sea. And they're gathered around him. And these are all people who want miracles. They're coming. Why? Because Jesus is exercising demons and he's healing people and he's doing all these things. And Tim Keller makes the point, they want to get things from God, not necessarily get God. And he makes the point that when Jesus says, I will tell and teach in parables, he says it's like a filter. The people who are really interested in me, the people who want to work it in, come and see and I'll tell you what this means. The rest of them, I'm filtering out. Do we want to get things from God or do we want to get God himself? And get God himself for the sake of God, regardless of how things are going in our lives. So how do we hear the story, really hear the story? You're glad I'm not ending the sermon there, aren't you? Not only is it a secret story and a subversive story, but thankfully it's a salvation story. In verse 14, Jesus begins to explain the parable. And what does he say? He says, the sower sows the word. The word is like seed. Tim Keller says, Jesus Christ in this passage tells us how he can change your life. He says, I can change your life if you recognize my gospel, my word, the basic message of what I can do is a seed. And if you receive it as a seed and understand it as a seed, it can and will change your life. And what is the seed? The seed is a tiny, little, seemingly powerless, seemingly insignificant, small little thing. But what power? Are we aware of the biblical witness about the Word of God, what the Word of God says? That it's certainly not less than information. You have to have the right information. But it is so much more. It's never less than, but it is always... More than. Peter says, for instance, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and active Word of God. Did you get that? The Word of God is living. That means it's moving. It's alive. It's organic. That means when we read it, when we hear it, when we listen to it, when we teach it, when we proclaim it, God, through his word, is actually acting upon you right now. He's doing something to you. He may be making you mad. He may be challenging you. He may be changing you. That's why the hardest question we always ask, and the one in community group we always want to avoid, is how does God want to change me through his word? We want to look at everything, but how does God want to change me? We want to look, what does it teach over here? What does it do over here? God's word is living and active and useful for changing us, 
God is personally walking among us right now, acting upon you. I don't know how, and I don't know in what way. Might be drawing you, might be repelling you. Hebrews puts it this way, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Think about that. The word of God is sharper. Remember this summer while I was on sabbatical having my hernia surgery? And I remember waking up going, ooh, that hurts. Somebody took a sharp sword to my insides there. Hmm, not happy. I quickly repented of my pride and said, Evie, pass the pain medicine. I'll take as much as you're willing to offer. I'll gladly sleep, wake me up in a month. I have no problem with this. I'm convinced this is one of the reasons we avoid Bible reading. We know intuitively that the Bible is sharper than any double-edged sword. Let me just have a five-minute devotion over here. Put my check in the box, I'll go. But actual Bible reading, where I'm reading Deuteronomy and Revelation, where I'm reading Ecclesiastes and Luke, where I'm reading Genesis and Ephesians, where I'm taking in the whole counsel of God and I'm actually meeting with God? Nope. Don't want any of that. Let me avoid that. That's sharper than any double-edged sword. That might challenge my presuppositions. That may challenge my prejudices. That may challenge my mindset and my worldview. I'd rather avoid God. Be very, that's a challenge. I'll be honest with you, I struggled preparing this sermon this week. This was not an easy sermon when you think about it. The Word of God is living and active. That's more than just information. And how does it release its power? Little seed. The seed is the Word. How does it release its power in our life? Again, I'm indebted to Tim Keller on this because he says the power is only released in our life if it goes deep. Look at the other soils. Three of them, ineffective, only one produces fruit. And he says, what is their problem? He says, in every other case, it's a depth problem. In the first case, the seed doesn't go in at all. Satan immediately immediately comes, snatches it away, and takes it away. Or it doesn't go deep enough. The rocky ground doesn't have, what does it say, root in and of itself. And so when tribulation, when persecution, when suffering when affliction, when the hard times of life. This is a word to the American church. We want come in and feel good in worship and let's have fellowship and let's have a... But when difficult times come, when it doesn't take root, it falls away. Or lastly, it goes in deep, but only at the level of the weeds and the thorns, other concerns, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches go in at the same level, they become just as important as the gospel. Tim Keller says the good good soil, when he talks about it, he says in every case, the gospel, in these other three cases, it doesn't go in deep enough. It's a depth problem. He says you must take the gospel, but then really work it in deeply through listening, thinking, reflecting, discussing, and applying over and over and over again. And when you've done it, do it more. And when you've done it more, do it even more. He says, you don't just sit back. He says, the gospel is not something that does something to you without you. 
Yes, we depend on God to do the work. What does Philippians 2 say? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you. If God's in work with you, you're going to work. Work out your salvation with fear. His work involves your participation. And he says you have to work it through through thinking and listening, hearing and understanding more and more. And what do you have to work in deeply? You have to work in that it's a salvation story. It's not simply a morality story. It's not a biblical principle story. It's a salvation story. The kingdom story is a salvation story. Remember John 12 that I quoted earlier? I said we'd come back to it. Now's the time. We're coming back to it. In John 12, remember we said that Jesus in this story, in the parable of the sower, he's telling the story of himself. He's describing his own work. And in John chapter 12, he says, unless a grain of wheat seed falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. Think the three soils. This is a good commentary on the parable of the sower. It doesn't fall into the earth and dies, so it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. If it dies, it'll bear 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. And then Jesus says, putting the application to us in there, he says, whoever, so we don't die in the same way, in the unique, redemptive way that Jesus dies, but we live what theologians are calling a cruciform life, a life that is conformed to and patterned after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And Jesus refers to that here when he says, whoever, meaning any of us, loses his life, loves his life, holds on to it, refuses to die, loses it. But whoever hates his life, in other words, loses his life, gives up his preferences and becomes, if you would, that seed going into the world, dying, becomes, in a sense, the good soil will keep it for eternal life. See, what is Jesus' work that the parable of the sower tells? It is for a seed to bear 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, it must fall into the earth and die. And what does Jesus do? He dies for us. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that first gospel promise referred to Jesus as what? God says, to the serpent, I'll bring enmity, hostility, between you and the woman, and between your seed, your offspring, and her seed, singular. You'll bruise, the serpent will bruise his heel. He did that on the cross. But the seed of the woman will crush Satan's head. And how does he crush Satan's head? Through apparent weakness, through death, through giving himself off and falling into the earth and dying. He dies for us. So that, because what's the calling of that seed that eventually became Abraham and Israel, becomes Jesus and becomes us in Jesus? God said when he chose Abraham, I will bless you and make you a great nation so that all nations of the earth will be blessed through you. See, the seed falls into the earth and dies so that salvation may come uniquely through that seed through Jesus, but Jesus and then us for the sake of the world. 
because all nations of the earth see it's Jesus saving us for the sake of the world because we become, see, what does it mean? Think about it this way. What does it mean to become a Christian? When you become a Christian, do you just believe the certain things and all the things you believe stay here, but we stay here? That's not what the Bible says happens when we become a Christian. When we become a Christian, we become the Bible. The number one phrase Paul used to describe a Christian was they are in Christ. In Christ, meaning united to Jesus, so that what Jesus accomplishes becomes ours by virtue of that union with Jesus. By faith, we become actually one with Jesus to the point that he's our head, we are his body. So if he becomes seed for us, we actually become seed for the world. And how do we become seed for the world? By dying to our preferences, living. And probably the biggest way is by loving the world. Not loving the things of the world, but actually recognizing that our identity, our nature, our vocation, our calling, may I dare even say the very purpose of our election is for the sake of the world. We're not elected so we can sit back and go, isn't that wonderful God elected me and I can live my nice middle class life and go to heaven when I die. The purpose of election is God has said the church, that's why I said the missional church just simply means the church. Jesus died for us for the sake of his elect in the world. He became seed for us so that we can become seed for the world. Is that the story we're hearing? Is that the story we're listening to? I'll tell you, that's the story we forget all the time. That salvation story and Jesus saving us for the sake of the world, that's a story that we forget most of the time. And being saved for the sake of the world doesn't mean just evangelism. Evangelism is a part of it. But the mission is that of being a light to the nations by our lifestyle, by our love, by our values, by our beauty, by our goodness, by our forgiveness, by our justice, by all these things that Christ, because of virtue of our union with him, implants with him. Peter actually worded that we partake of the divine nature. We're given things like the fruit of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 13, the Sermon on the Mount these things to be conformed, cruciformed to the personality of Jesus. Jesus loving and dying and saving us for the sake of the world. Seed of the world is the church of Jesus Christ. Father, may we have ears to hear. I know we don't understand every implication of this story, but I pray that Spruce Creek Church and the Church Universal would be filled with good soil, the soil of Jesus' seed. The only good soil that is is the soil of Jesus. And I pray that that would bear fruit for those that you have elected and called to yourself, that we would recognize we exist not for our own sake, but for the sake of those around us. Help us to have those eyes, your eyes, Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.